we continue our series in the book of Genesis. And today we come to Genesis 18. Genesis chapter 18. As we, we've been making our way through this particular book, we've seen in the last few chapters, packed in uh, very few chapters, are events after events that give us a glimpse of God's interaction with his chosen people, his elect. If you remember at the beginning of chapter 15, we see him as the God who justifies. Remember in Genesis 15 verse 6, it says, then he, that is Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. That's chapter 15. In chapter 16, we see him as the El Roy, uh, the God who sees. And in the name Ishmael, we see the God who hears. Uh, this is a God, in other words, who cares for his people. In chapter 17, the last chapter, we saw him as the El Shaddai, the God Almighty. God Almighty, when we were there, we learned, is the one who is all-powerful and that this power is seen exercised in blessing his people, in making them fruitful. God is the one, you see, who gives children. Also in chapter 17, verse 1, Moses tells us that God appeared to Abraham, but he does not tell us in what way he did that. If you were to go back to chapter 17, verse, verse 1, it says, Now when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him. But now in chapter 18, we are not only told that he appeared, but how he appeared. So what seems abstract in chapter 17, verse 1, now becomes concrete in chapter 18, verse 1. But more than being concrete, we are given a glimpse of God a characteristic of God, a quality of God that should warm the heart of every child of God. Now, it is true that God is all-powerful, but what is also equally true is that he uses this power for, for good. Sometimes it's the simplest, the most obvious things about God that the child of God needs to remember. For example, God is good, and God is great. Just two, those two simple truths can revolutionize your thinking and your response to situations in your life. God is good and God is great. I'm reminded also of the VBS song that we learned with our children a few years back when we were a part of another church. And perhaps you are familiar with this song as well. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. He made the trees, he made the seas, he made the elephants too. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. And that is the God that we will meet in this chapter, in chapter 18. And so I've titled our lesson for today, The God of the Impossible. I, I borrowed this title from Steve Lawson's lesson on the same passage, but I just didn't borrow anything else, if you're interested. Just the title, The God of the Impossible. In fact, as I was thinking of the passage in front of us, that's the title that came to my mind, and when I went and looked up some other people who have preached on it, 
this was one of the ones that appealed to me because it captures what is in this text in front of us. The God of the impossible. Let's begin reading. We plan to cover, Lord willing, the first 15 verses in this chapter. Let's begin reading verse 1 and verse 2. Now the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. When he, that is Abraham, lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. Uh, first of all, as we think of the God of the impossible, we see him as one who initiates fellowship. It says here, Yahweh appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre. Now, it's a similar phrase, as I mentioned earlier, that's used in the previous chapter, in chapter 17, verse 1. And also, when the Lord communicated with Abraham, when he first entered the promised land, in chapter 12, verse 7, Yahweh appeared to Abraham. Uh, the word appeared is in a tense form that means to present oneself or uh, to make oneself, oneself seen or visible. And that's what happens here. The word appeared then is to, is, means that he made himself visible. Now there is no mention of Abraham before this invoking the name of the Lord or calling on the name of the Lord. The text just says, now the Lord appeared to him. The appearance of the Lord is by the oaks of Mamre. Uh, this is the area, the south of Jerusalem, it's a place called Hebron. Uh, this place is first mentioned in Genesis chapter 13, where Abraham settles after resolving the dispute with his nephew Lot. It's mentioned again in chapter 14 as his address in the dispute against the, the, king from, the kings from the east. And now it's mentioned a third time. And so all of that to say that Abraham has lived in this area for some time, at least 20 plus years. What is he doing? He's sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. It's possible that Abraham and his servants have worked hard in the morning, perhaps getting up early in the morning and then working until noon and they're exhausted and they are now resting as the sun is overhead. It is, it is noon. One translation says it was the heat, it is in the heat of the day that this happens. Now the temperatures during this time under the shade of the tree, under the shade of the tree can run into between 110 to 120 degrees Fahrenheit. So this was really hot. And in such an environment, the hottest time of the day, and with a tired body, Abraham looks up, and as he looks up, he sees three men, verse 2 that were standing directly opposite him. Now it seems from the text that it's not as if Abraham saw these visitors from afar and then they kept getting bigger as they came nearer, but that when he looked up, he, they were right there. Now Moses has told us who this is. Look, look at verse one. Now the Lord, that is Yahweh, the word there for the word Lord is Yahweh. So Moses tells us who this is, but you have to think from Abraham's perspective. Abraham does not know who this is. Uh, for us then, we see a God who actually takes the initiative of fellowship, fellowshipping with his children. He takes the first step in establishing a relationship and he takes the first step in seeking fellowship with his children. Now, As we look at the rest of the scriptures from here on, the idea of God initiating a fellowship is consistent and in line with who he is. 
Uh, there is fellowship even within the Trinity to begin with. It was God, if you remember in Exodus chapter 3, it was God who appeared to Moses in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. It was God who took the initiative. Uh, when a word from the Lord was rare and the visions were in, infrequent in the times of the judges and when Samuel was just a boy, it was the Lord who called Samuel, Samuel chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 3. It was also the Lord in first, Second Samuel chapter 12 who took the initiative of sending his prophet Nathan to confront David about his sin. In the New Testament, if you were to come there, in the first chapter of Matthew, we see a God who takes the initiative of becoming a man. And it says that, that his name is to be called Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then it goes on to tell us they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. John, in his letter, 1 John 4.19, makes it even more explicit. We love him because he first loved us. Now, this is a God who initiates a relationship, and this is a God who initiates fellowship with his children. To such a display of initiation, what is the best response? How does Abraham respond? Notice, secondly, he responds with full commitment. Uh, this is a God. The God of the impossible deserves our full commitment. Notice verse 2, uh, starting the second half. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. Now, remember again, it is we as the readers who know who this is because Moses has told us who this is. But Abraham, on his part, does not yet know who this, these men are or who this individual is. Uh, this is Yahweh. As we read, read the rest of this chapter and then chapter 19, we will find that what this is is a theophany. Uh, this is a visible representation of God. And God, Yahweh, is accompanied by two other angels. We'll read that in chapter 19, verse, verse 1. But Abraham, from his perspective, sees three men. So how does Abraham respond to these visitors? Notice verse 2. He ran from the tent door to meet them. You know, you have to remember, uh, this is almost a hundred-year-old man. With all the energy that he has, he runs to meet them. Also, in the same verse, it tells us that he bows himself to the earth. It's a similar word for worshiping. He shows respect and honor to these visitors. Thirdly, in verse 3, it says, He calls them my Lord. The word there for Lord is not Yahweh, but Adonai, which is also translated as master. It's a term that displays honor and respect for the guests. What else does he do? He entreats them not to pass by. Notice verse, at the end of verse 3, but to stay for a while. Also, he displays care and concern for the visitors by offering them water to drink and water to wash their feet. He offers them a place to rest under the tree. And then he offers them food to refresh themselves. Notice verse Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring piece of, a piece of bread that you may refresh yourselves. After that, you may go on. 
And so he also offers them liberty to live and to go on after he has had the opportunity to serve them. The guests are addressed as Lord and Abraham addresses himself as a servant. Notice verse 5. Since you have visited your servant. What he is doing is, is he is displaying, putting on full display an attitude of humility. Our God deserves our full commitment. Notice the sense of urgency as he displays his care for these visitors. Verse 6, Abraham hurried into the tent. He hurries to the tent where Sarah is, and then he tells Sarah to quickly prepare three measures of fine flour, knead it, and make bread cakes. Now, how much are we talking about here? Well, three measures of fine flour equals about a bushel. Well, you say that doesn't help. Well, a bushel is about 40 to 60 pounds of flour. Those of you who are into making bread, this is on a minimum side of things, 20 loaves of bread, each about two pounds. 20 loaves of bread, each about two pounds. That's a lot of food for people. There are just three in number. Then Moses tells us he ran to the herd, verse 7, and took a tender and a choice calf, and he gave it to his servant. And then sensing the urgency from his master's perspective or demeanor, it rubbed off on him, on the servant, and he himself hurried and prepared the meat. Now once the food was prepared, notice verse 8, Abraham took some curds, an item that is, that is cooling and helps also in digestion. He took the meat that was prepared along with the bread and placed it before them. And once he places the food in front of them, notice what he does not do. He does not sit with them while they are eating. Why? Because he does not consider himself equal with them, but he's standing separately under a tree. He serves, acts as a servant, and he acts also as a waiter. So what are we observing here in these few verses? Well, what we are seeing here is an example of great and a godly and a gracious hospitality. It's perhaps this incidence that the writer of Hebrews is thinking of as he writes, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for, but this, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Now, the Greek word for hospitality means love of strangers. Uh, this is the kindness that is shown in welcoming and meeting the needs of strangers. See, Abraham himself was a stranger at one point of time, wasn't he? And so he knows what it is to be a stranger. And Abraham then, you see, as you look at this text, he is leaving no stone unturned in his treatment of these three visitors, these three strangers. How we treat strangers, you see, is our response to how God treated us. It's, it's as if Abraham's faith is tested here. It's as if he is tested here. His faith is put on full display and his relationship with God is uncovered. How you and I treat strangers exposes the authenticity or the weakness of our faith. How do you treat strangers? How do you treat someone who is not in a position to compensate you? How do you treat someone from whom you can expect nothing in return? 
Wasn't it our Lord who said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. As we think of Abraham's gracious and godly hospitality, I want to draw a few lessons uh, regarding serving others from this section. There are at least four principles that I want to draw for us as we look at serving others. First of all, serve others with an attitude of humility. Serve others with an attitude of humility. Notice as in the text itself, he addresses them, his visitors, as Lord, not calling them God but masters and himself as a servant. He does not even consider himself worthy to sit with them. Serve others with an attitude of humility. Uh, secondly, serve others sacrificially. Uh, just the sense that you get from this passage is that Abraham brings out the best that he has. Uh, you don't get a sense that Abraham is holding himself back here. Uh, he is going all out in order to serve these people. Serve others sacrificially. Uh, thir thirdly, serve others willingly. You also don't get a sense from this text that someone is telling Abraham what to do and he's following orders. No, he's serving them willingly. And then finally, serve others promptly or with a sense of urgency. How many words have we read where Abraham is just moving from one place to another? I notice verse 2. He he ran from the tender to meet them. He entreats them to rest and refresh. Uh, he then hurries into the tent. He tells Sarah to quickly prepare food, runs to the herd, selects the best calf, tender and choice, and then he hurries to the servant to prepare it for them. There's a sense of urgency in his actions. There's a sense of promptness in his action. You know, all of us, if you're coming regularly to this group, we get an opportunity to serve others. Uh, that comes perhaps once every two months for your group. How do you serve others? Do you serve with humility? Do you serve willingly? Are you forced to be there? Do you serve sacrificially? Or do you serve with a sense of urgency? I draw these principles to say this as well. This is how... Our Lord served us as well. He said in Luke 22, I am among you as he that serveth. I'm among you as he that serves. He served humbly, didn't he? Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not consider it equality with God, something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant and being made in the likeness of men. He served humbly. He also served willingly. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has to take it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. He served us willingly. He served us sacrificially. For even... The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. 
I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He served sacrificially. There was also a sense of urgency in his serving. There was a sense of promptness. And though our Lord was never in a hurry, there was always a strong sense of urgency in his actions that surrounded his life. He came to this world to accomplish the work that the Father had given him to do, and the eternal destiny of souls depended on what he did. And we just celebrated that last weekend, didn't we? He would say, for example, Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's coming. It's almost here. Remember that incident in John chapter 4 as he's interacting with the Samaritan woman and the disciples come from getting food. They return from getting fruit from the town. And he would say to them, my food is to do the will of who, him who sent me and accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. There's a sense of promptness. There's a sense of urgency in, in, in how our Lord serves us and how he is going about accomplishing his plans and purposes. So we saw a God who initiates fellowship, and in response we see in Abraham one who displays full commitment. Now that thirdly brings us to a God who knows all things. Notice verse 9, 10, and then verse 13. Then they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, there in the tent. He said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. I want to jump down to verse 13. And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, saying, shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Now this is, as Abraham is listening to this, this is perhaps the first time that Abraham begins to get a sense that these are not mere men, but these are some special people. Not just someone who is special, but in fact someone who is divine. Notice a few things in this text itself about what follows after lunch. Uh, they first of all, in verse 9, ask him, where is Sarah, his wife? So the visitors know Abraham's, Abraham, and they know Abraham's wife as well. Now, in the Middle Eastern culture uh, and, and time, and even today, ladies, specifically wives, uh, did not make an appearance before the guests. So it's possible that Sarah never actually physically came before the visitors at all. But not only do they know who the wife is, they also call her by her covenantal name, Sarah, and not Sarai. Now, it's hardly been a chapter, which is chapter 17, is when her name was changed to Sarah. Uh, but these visitors seem to know her covenantal name already. Now, the question, well, why ask the question, where is Sarah, your wife? Verse 9. Uh, that particular question sounds very much like the question that God asked Adam in chapter 3, where are you? Or in chapter 4, he asks Cain, where is Abel, your brother? Now, why does God ask? Does he not know? Of course not. It's not as if God doesn't know where Adam is or where Abel is or where Sarah is. 
But it is asked in both those instances, both chapter 3 and chapter 4, and I think in chapter 18 as well, it's asked with an intention to uncover the thoughts and intentions of the person to whom it is asked. What do I mean by that? I, I see this as a gracious act on the part of God as he gives an opportunity to the individual even as he's getting ready to confront them. But why confront? Well, because of what he says next and how Sarah responds to, to that. We'll come to that. But the question is asked to Abraham, but it's actually intended for Sarah. Notice, notice what the visitors say in verse 10. I will surely return to you at this time next year. Can a visitor who is just visiting you speak in this way unless they are fully aware of what is already about to happen in a year? Not only will he return, but also when I return, it says, Sarah, your wife will have a son. Well, in chapter 17, verse 16, you might want to turn there. That's when Yahweh actually tells Abraham what is going to happen next year. 16, rather. I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nation. Kings of peoples will come from her. Abraham here, for the first time, is told that it's actually Sarah who's going to bear a child for him. Before this, he, he knew there was a child coming. In fact, he erroneously thought that it was through, through Hagar. But no, says God, it's, it's through Sarah, your wife. And so that's the first time we find out that the child is going to come through Sarah. But now, for the first time in chapter 18, Sarah is told that she will have a son. Now we're not told between chapter 17 and chapter 18 if Abraham had a conversation with his wife. If he did, you can almost imagine as you put your sanctified hats on yourself, Sarah's reaction to the first time Abraham told her, no, you're, you're going to bear a child, sweetheart. You're, you're getting old, Abraham. You're losing your mind. Are you kidding me? No, no, no pun intended there. How is it possible, Abraham? I am 89 and you're 99. I'm 89 going on 90. You're 99 going on 100. I'm, I'm no longer 16 going on 17, you know. We have seen enough of how life works. We have seen enough babies being born around us to know how that works. And are you telling me I'm going to bear a child? You haven't been to your ENT specialist lately, have you? I don't think you have heard correctly from the Lord. That was chapter 17. Now, this is chapter 18. And perhaps this is just a few days after chapter 17. Or perhaps a few weeks later, she is told the same thing that Abraham is told in chapter 17. But this time, she's told the same thing from complete strangers who are beginning to look like divine beings. These visitors not only know who Abraham's wife is, they not only call her by her covenantal name, they also remind Abraham of the promise that only Yahweh has made to him, to Abraham, a conversation that took place only between him and Abraham. Not only we are that we are also told at the end of verse 10 that Sarah was listening but she was behind 
hidden behind the tent door. Notice verse 10. And Sarah was listening at the tent door which was behind him. Sarah's location is shared because of what will be mentioned in verse 13. Notice what's mentioned in verse 13. And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I'm so old? Why did Sarah laugh, it says. Indeed, shall I bear a child when I'm so old? Now, it's not as if Sarah said this to her friends or servants. Notice what it says in verse 12. It says Sarah laughed to herself. Uh, this is something that she thought to herself. She reflected this in her mind. And so this is no ordinary visitor who's able to read your mind. No, no, this is Yahweh. This is the one who created us and who knows us intimately. He knows our thoughts and he knows our heart. Isn't it the psalmist in Psalm 139 who reminds us, O Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thoughts from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. Hebrews 4.13, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, God's sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Psalm 44, verse 21, would not God find this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Uh, that thought, uh, that action that is seemingly done in secret, hidden from the public, that sin in private, all of that is knowing to God. You see, he's an omniscient God. As someone has said, the private sin on earth is an open scandal in heaven. The private sin on earth is an open scandal in heaven. He knows it all. Proverbs says, Proverbs 28, verse 13, He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. To such a God who knows all things, how are we to respond? How should we treat him? How should we treat his word? Thirdly, he deserves our full trust. Notice verse 12 and verse 15. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I've become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being old also? Not only am I old, but also my Lord, that is what she calls Abraham, he is also old. And then verse 15, when she was confronted with this, it says Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. You see, when Abraham's faith is put on display, it revealed a faith that was maturing, a faith that had come a long way. You see, this was the same man who had left the promised land and went into Egypt and then lied about his relationship with Sarah. He has come a long way. He lied to protect his own life. Now, he's still not where he needs to be, but he's no longer where he was. In comparison to him, how does Sarah's faith compare? Well, it says here in verse 12, she laughed to herself. 
Now, that is that she expressed unbelief. You might say, well, isn't that what Abraham did in chapter 17? The same word is used there to describe Abraham's reaction when he was told that Sarah would bear him a son. Chapter 17, verse 17. He fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? That same word laughter is used for Abraham as it's used for Sarah here. But the reaction of the Lord is different in both cases. In Abraham's case, it was as if Abraham was saying, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. That's why the Lord responded to him the way he did. But in Sarah's case, it was as if she was saying, Lord, I don't believe this. It's just not possible, Lord. Unbelief. Unbelief is a, is a sin. It's essentially not to, to believe, simply put. This is to display a slowness of heart to believe God's promises. She doubts what God says. She's skeptical of God, what God has promised and what God can or cannot do. His word, you see, is not enough for her. But that's not where she stopped. That's usually the pattern of sin, isn't it? If it's not stopped, it leads to more sin. Sarah not only expressed unbelief, but in, in verse 15, we are also told that she also lied. Notice verse 15, Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh. When she was confronted about her laughter, she denied that she laughed. Uh, to lie is to misrepresent facts. It's to affirm things as true when they are not true. And scriptures are very clear, aren't they? Lying is a sin, and it is displeasing to our God. While pride, you see, was at the root of Satan's sin and his fall, lying was amongst the first sins that he introduced in the world. You surely will not die, Genesis chapter 3. That was preceded only by unbelief or doubting God's word. Indeed, has God said. See, it began with doubt, and then it led to lying. Similar to Sarah's situation, she doubted, and then she lied. What should have been the appropriate response? Uh, what I have for us on the screen. Our God deserves our full trust. Fully trusting God means we are not skeptical about what God's word says and receiving it and believing it and obeying it without hesitation. That's what full trust looks like. Fully trusting God means we are not skeptical about what God's word says and receiving it and believing it and obeying it without hesitation. Is that the kind of faith you and I display? You see, just like Abraham was tested before and his test revealed a growing faith, Sarah's faith too was tested. And her faith was exposed and it revealed a weak faith. Now why do I say a weak faith rather than no faith? Because of what the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 11. He writes there, by faith even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life since she considered him faithful who had promised. Somewhere after this incident in Genesis 18 verse 15 and the next event, 
Perhaps Sarah went back to her rocking chair, I don't know, and thought about this interaction. She let her mind reflect on the last 24 years of her life. You see, 24 years back, God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans. And since he called him, he has been a God who has never deserted them. This is what Sarah is probably thinking. He is a God who has always been a faithful God. He has been a God who has always been a trustworthy God. He has never lied. He has never given me any opportunity to doubt him. And even if what he is saying goes against what generally happens in this world, he after all is the Elohim. He is Yahweh, the God who has always existed. He is El Elyon, the God most high. He is El Roy, the God who sees everything. He is also the God who hears everything. He is also El Shaddai, the God Almighty. I shouldn't have doubted. I shouldn't have taken my eyes off of the Lord. You see, he deserves my full trust. He alone is worthy of my trust. You see, that is the kind of response that would have honored God. But you see, God is a merciful and a gracious God. Because if you come down too hard on Sarah, you're really coming down too hard on yourself. How many of us have not expressed a doubt or expressed hesitation in obeying the Lord fully? You see, Sarah's sin of unbelief and of lying ultimately, though, ended for her good and for God's glory. Because from this incidence, we get a glimpse of another attribute of God, and it is that he can do all things. He can do all things. Verse 11 and verse 14. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. And then verse 14, just to get a context, Sarah laughed to herself saying, After I've become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I'm so old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. You see, before we understand and appreciate his ability to do all things, we need to get a sense of the seeming challenge, humanly speaking though, that he was against. Moses tells us that Abraham and Sarah were old. In fact, they were very old, verse 11. He was 99 and she was 89. If that wasn't clear enough, he goes on to tell us that they were advanced in age. Now, there was a generation, perhaps a few generations before Abraham, where people did live up to 400 and 500. But by the time we come to Abraham's time, 99 for a man and 89 for a woman is considered old. Why is that important to know? Let me give you an illustration to help us understand it. I had the joy of being in the room when all of my children were born. For those of you who haven't had an opportunity or don't expect to have an opportunity, you can just take what I'm saying by faith or you can do your own research online. I can tell you this. It takes a lot of strength, a tremendous amount of physical strength and endurance, first of all, to carry the baby for those 39 weeks. And then it takes a lot of strength and a lot of endurance to deliver that baby. 
And we're also talking about a time when there was no anesthesia or epidurals that were available. Nothing of that sort. You can just imagine an 89-year-old woman in labor and in delivery. Not only are they old, verse 11 tells us Sarah was well past the childbearing phase. In fact, ESV says the way of the woman had ceased to be with Sarah. Or as the NET translates it, Sarah had long since passed menopause. She was old and physically weak, but not only was she physically weak, it was physically impossible for her to have children because she had long since passed menopause. Now, humanly speaking, this was an impossible task. But then, who is talking about humans? No, we're talking about a God. We're talking about Elohim, who with the word of his mouth created everything that exists. He spoke and it came into being. And to Sarah's doubt, then this Lord answers with the question and then repeats the promise in verse 14. The question is, is anything too difficult for the Lord? It's a rhetorical question, the answer to which is, of course not. Now, I must say, as coming from a philosophical background, I must clarify what that means, because someone will go on the internet and then ask this question, can God create a stone that he cannot carry? The answer is, God will do everything consistent with his nature and character. God can do everything consistent with his nature and character. And from your perspective, Sarah, it looks difficult. This looks like a seemingly impossible task. From your experience of life, Sarah, it looks like it can never happen. Ah, but to the God who created the womb, is it too difficult for him to open the womb? Absolutely not. In fact, to this rhetorical question, next Jeremiah answers that in Jeremiah 32, verse 17. Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth, and by your great power and by your outstretched arm, nothing is too difficult for you. And then, in verse 14, the promise is repeated. At the appointed time, at the time that has been set, at the time that I have fixed, at this season next year, I will return to you, and Sarah, you will have a son. Uh, we find the fulfillment of this promise in Genesis 21, verse 1 and 2. You don't have to turn there, but there Moses records for us, then the Lord took note of Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. How amazing is this? When I went first to seminary, I remember one of the professors reminding me of how my faith would be stretched. He was 77 year old, years old when I met him at that time, and he said, the challenges and issues that I face, it feels like someone has taken me in an airplane high up in the air, thousands of feet in the air, and has just dropped me from the air. And just before I hit the ground, it's as if that God picks me up and holds me. And he's always kept me safe. But in the process of those challenges and those difficulties of life, I find that my faith has stretched and my maturity and my love 
and my desire to bring glory and honor to God has increased. Look at this impossible, seemingly, humanly speaking, impossible situation in Sarah and Abraham's life. But you know, Sarah was not the only one who faced a seemingly impossible circumstance. In Luke chapter 1 are recorded for us two other instances that are remarkably similar. It's a story of Zacharias and his wife. You may want to turn there as we would walk through as we bring this to a close. Luke chapter 1. It is a story of Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth. Uh, You see, they too did not have a child, and they too were advanced in years. And they too were promised a child, and they too received a child. That's one couple. But it's actually the second story that I want to draw your attention to. It's a story of Mary. And to Mary, the angel Gabriel visits her in Nazareth, And she was told that she had found favor with God and that she will conceive and in her womb and bear a son and that she should call him Jesus and that he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high, verse 32, and that the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. And notice Mary's response Her response is very similar to the response that Abraham had. And we can use our sanctified imagination here to imagine what she may have said. Lord, I I believe. Help my unbelief. Now, although that's not what the text says there, the text says, how can this be since I am a virgin? You see, with Sarah, the issue was she was old and beyond the stays of childbearing. With Mary... The issue was not that she was old. In fact, she may have been 13 or 14 years old. It was not that she was old, but it was that she was a virgin. And no man had slept with her. And so the angel answered her and said, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, uh, this is the Holy Child, and he will be called the Son of God. And then in verse 37, we are told, For nothing will be impossible with God. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? Answer, no, nothing is impossible with God. And then Mary displays the kind of response we must have as well. Behold, she says, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done according to your word. It was a deep reverence for and a submission to God's word. You see, Sarah doubted and expressed skepticism towards God's word. But Mary, we find one who receives God's word and trusts him. Now, I don't know your particular situation. I don't know the seemingly difficult circumstances of your life. Uh, Perhaps you are up against something, humanly speaking, is an impossible task. And so if you're a child of God, what a comfort and a delight and an encouragement to know that we believe in and that we have a God who is the God of the impossible. He can do all things. Perhaps we don't receive much because we don't ask much in prayer. What are some of the lessons that we can draw from these 15 
verses. It's essentially a, a summary of what we've already looked at. Uh, first of all, our Lord deserves all of who we are. Remember how all out did Abraham go in order to serve these three visitors. Our Lord deserves all of who we are. There should be no compartmentalization in our life where certain areas of our life are not under the Lordship of Christ and others are. No, all of our life needs to be under the Lordship of Christ. Uh, secondly, our Lord knows all things and he can do all things. And thirdly and finally, our Lord deserves our full trust. He has been faithful. He has been trustworthy. He never lies. He keeps his promises. Our Lord deserves nothing but our full trust. Let's close our time in a word of prayer. Father, we come to you knowing that you are our God. You are our heavenly Father. I'm thankful for this reminder in this chapter in these first few verses that you are a God who initiates fellowship with us. We love you, Lord, because you first loved us. And this initiation from you deserves the rightful response, which is that we are to display a full commitment with all that we have towards you. Not only that, we are reminded from this chapter that you are a God who knows it all. And that is, we cannot hide anything from your, from your eyes. Everything is laid before you bear. But Lord, help us not to do the right things just because we know that you know it all, but help us to do the right, right thing because we love you. And that is truly the inclination of our heart. Perhaps we're sitting here and we are even harsh in our minds about how Sarah responded to, to your word. Remind us, Lord, that we have been in Sarah's place too. Expressing doubt, telling you that we love you, but really being skeptical of your word. Lord, so many times we have said we love you and we want to honor you through our life, and yet we don't take the time to be diligent and disciplined about our time in your word. Oh, Lord, forgive us. Lying lips are an abomination to you, but those who deal faithfully are your delight. Lord, we want to delight you through our life. Help your word to be a, a foundation for, for our life. Uh, remind us that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit as it exposes our deepest thoughts. And so as we come to your word, Lord, remind us the importance of honoring your word and fully trusting your word and obeying your word. Your word never tells us just to be hearers of your word, but your word tells us to be doers of it. So help us to be found obedient to your word. I commit the rest of the evening into your hands. I pray that you would be honored with our time together as we reflect on this lesson. In Jesus' precious and worthy name we pray. Amen.